Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. We started last week a little series, I've called it The Battle for Your Identity. And I'm going to teach on it for a little while, but uh, I'll be honest with you, this is a battle that you, until the day you die, you're going to have to battle for your identity, who you are. Reminds me of, of, of the joke, the old, little, the old hillbilly, and I can pick on hillbillies because I am one. So Bill's not here because I was going to use West Virginia instead of uh, hillbilly, but I can't pick on him if he's not here. But the hillbilly came out of the hills, went to the city to get him a job, and he's driving around. Policeman pulls him over, and the policeman walks up to the window. Said, do you have any ID? The hillbilly looked at him and said, about what? <laughs> well, the reason, the reason that the, the policeman asked for ID, because they want to know who you are, and they're assuming that your ID is going to be genuine. In fact, if they catch you with a fake ID, they'll, they'll, they will put handcuffs on your little wrists and they will haul you to jail. That your ID tells them who you are. The problem with a lot of us is we're running around with a fake ID. We pull out our wallet and we've got two IDs. We've got the ID of the flesh that says, you're a rotten, dirty scoundrel, I know all your sins. I've said it before. Satan knows who you are, but he will call you by your sin. And if you agree with him, that's going to be the ID that you look at. But then there's the real ID, and that's got the picture that Jesus gave you. And when Jesus looks at you, Jesus says, this is my child. I chose you. I've cleaned you up. Your past is the past, and your past may only be one second past, but it's your past. And that sin is not your problem. Your problem is that you're not looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith. You have to look at Him. You have to do what He says, and you have to believe what He says about you, first and foremost. And it will never, and until you have trained your mind and trained your heart, it will never seem right. And when you first start doing it, your mind will fight you. That's why Paul said in, in Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's a faith fight. We have to fight every day to keep our minds set on who we really are. But the good news is, and we looked at this last week, 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not earthbound. They're not worthless, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Those strongholds are the thoughts that you have built up and that you identify. When you think of yourself, if you're not thinking according to the way God is thinking, that's a stronghold. That's a place that the enemy has, and he can run back in there or retreat back in there and be safe and then run out and just wreak havoc in your life. Amen? Well, we can pull those strongholds down and build up some strongholds of ourselves. Build up some strongholds where when he comes against you and he says, you're just a lousy sinner and you've got scriptures, right? They just come to your head. It's like, no, that's not who I am. The Bible says, amen, we have to fight this, this um, fight of faith. We have to transform who we, how we see ourselves. When you got born again, when you accepted who Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, He changed you. You are a brand new creation. But you may not believe that fully and wholly. You may not be fully persuaded, as Romans says about Abraham. Until you get fully persuaded, you've got a fight. And then once you get fully persuaded, you're going to have to stay in the fight. Because the, the devil will try to come and steal that. Amen? And we looked last week, and I'm just going to go through these real quick. The, the primary verse we settled on, and this is how God sees you. It's what he says about us. 1 Peter 
We are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are His own special people. We looked at that. When He says we're a holy nation, that's our ethnic identity. When we look at one another, we should not see black, white, yellow. Your, your natural ethnicity means nothing to God. He doesn't care who your mama and daddy were. He doesn't care who your grandparents are. He doesn't care anything about your ancestry. Because he knows your ancestry. You are a child of the Father. Your brother is Jesus Christ, and that's who he identifies you with. You are the first generation. That's your genealogy when it says we're a chosen generation. We are one step geological or geologically, genealogically away from the Father. You want to look in your past, you want to write out your family tree, you look to your right, there's Jesus. You look up to, your, to, your, who, to see who, who your father and mother are, you've got no mother, it's just the Father. That's it. He chose you to be the first generation of His children. Now, I'm, I'm, let me just be brutally honest. If I was choosing... Wow. I wouldn't have chosen myself, let alone anybody else. I would have looked through the earth and I would have said, there's nothing there worth choosing. The difference is... He didn't choose us and take us as we were. He chose us and then made us how He wanted us to be. But He did it for a reason. The reason is the end of 1 Peter 2.9. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Part of Him calling us out of darkness into His marvelous light is to proclaim and make manifest that light to a lost and dying world. It reminds me of in Mark, or excuse me, um, Luke chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus goes across the, the sea and he comes to the land of Gadarene. And there's a demonic, a demoniac there. And he's got legions of demons that have possessed him. And Jesus cast them out. They ran into the swine. The swine ran into the water and drowned. And this man's standing there. He's clean. He's whole. He's free. And he had good sense, and he looked at Jesus and he said, I want to follow you. And you know Jesus had to have said, hey, you're brand new, yeah, come on, follow me. No. He said, you, I haven't called you to follow me, I've called you to be one of my disciples, but I want you to go back into your city, and I want you to proclaim what I have done for you to your friends and your neighbors. That's what God has called us to do. He's pulled us out of darkness and He said, Go into your world and proclaim what I've done for you. Amen? Now, <clears throat> for us to get the right identity so that we can proclaim something, we need, and we looked at these at the very end last week, there are two basic, and Pastor Chuck mentioned one of them already, there are two basic temptations that the devil has used. He used one with Adam, and he used one with Jesus. With Adam, he said, has God indeed said? He questioned the veracity of God's word. And with Jesus, he said, if you are the Son of God. He questioned the identity of Jesus. You say you're, you're, you're the second person of the Godhead. You say you're the Son of God. Prove it. Well, Jesus didn't have to prove anything. And he did. And now he, he, he instructed John, he said, these are the works that I'm doing. There's not another, another Savior coming. These works speak of who I am. But he proved, he proved that he was God incarnate by coming out of the grave. He conquered death. He conquered hell. And when he came out of the grave, he went to his disciples. And in, in the, I think it's the 20th chapter of John, he, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And they were born again. The church 
age started right there. Now, Tuesday is Pentecost. And a lot of people will tell you Pentecost is when the church started. No, Pentecost started, or excuse me, the church started when the first people got born again because they put faith in who Jesus was. And that was his disciples. Pentecost is where that group of people got empowered to go do the work of the church. There's a difference between being in the church and being empowered to proclaim the message. But you will never be empowered to proclaim the message until you start believing that you have everything that Jesus says you have. You have to have that identity. Amen? Now, let's go to uh, um, Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to look at, at Paul's prayer, and I'm not going to, we just finished this up on Wednesday nights, um, going through this verse by verse. But let's start in Ephesians 1 verse 15. Because I, I want to compare this. This is Paul praying for the church at Ephesus. This is God's will for that church. If it's God's will for that church, since God is not a respecter of persons, this is what he wants for us. He didn't want something for the Ephesians that he's not praying for us. And Paul included it in, or, or God included it in the scriptures. So this, is, this isn't just Paul praying this. This is God inspiring Paul to pray it and then give it to us and say, you do likewise. Amen? Ephesians 1, verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I can't get past this. It's not just having faith in Jesus. It's walking in love. I know a lot of people that are, they proclaim they're Christians, and I don't doubt that they have asked Jesus to come into their heart. But they're mean as snakes. They're just mean as a devil. I'm telling you, some of the worst fights I've ever seen have been in, in, in church board meetings. Vicious, hurtful hateful things said, and it not, ought not to be that way. I, I had a situation in my own family where one of my family members recently just, he wanted, he wanted to pound me into the ground. And I just had to stand my ground and say, I'm not going to fight you. Physically, verbally, or any other way. I did not, God did not place me in this world to fight and argue. He sent me in this world to have faith in Jesus and walk in love, not just towards all the saints, but towards everyone. Paul looked at these believers and he said, I know you're, I know you're part of the true church because you, you've exercised faith in Jesus, but you're also walking in love towards one another. It's not just believing that Jesus is the Messiah and asking Him into your heart. It's letting the love of Christ come out of your heart towards other people. But since I heard of that, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. You have to know something. And then this is the real key, that the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your heart, being enlightened, same word there in the, for enlightened as Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.9 when he says God's called us into his marvelous light. What Peter is praying here, I want the eyes of your heart to have the light of God illuminated. Why? So that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Remember, Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Hope is what gives you direction for your faith. Paul is saying, I pray that you're, you can get enlightened in your own heart, that the light of the gospel, the light of the knowledge of God, of who God is and who you are in God, 
will enlighten you so that you can know what is the hope, that you can get set on what my calling is for you. And my calling is to be who I've called you to be and do what I've called you to do. In general, this applies to everybody, I've called you to walk in love and to proclaim the gospel. Tell people who I am. Tell people this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus has done for me. You know, people will want to argue the Bible. I've had people say, well, how do you witness to somebody if they just reject the Bible? I never quote the Bible to a sinner. The Bible's for believers. I, when I quote to, to sinners, this is what Jesus did in me and for me and to me. You can tell me you don't believe the Bible, fine, you don't believe it. But let me tell you, I know that I know that I know that I know that I was in darkness and now I'm in light. I was blind, but now I see. I was deaf, but now I hear. You can argue Bible all day and all night. You can Bible argue interpretation of the word all day and all night. But you can't argue with what happened inside of me. It's real. Now, you may reject it. You may say, you're just a liar. Okay. I just It's not my job to, to change you. It's my job to proclaim to you what Jesus did and who he is and let that seed start growing. If you have a soft heart or if the seed can soften your heart, then eventually that seed will grow. And if you're open to it, you will step into that same knowledge. And if you harden your heart, you won't. But it's your choice then. My only job as a Christian is to proclaim to you, this is who Jesus is to me. This is what he did for me. And the proof is just what Jesus said to John's followers. Go tell John about what's happening. Well, I'm telling you, this is who Jesus is to me because this is what he's done for me. Amen? Now the problem comes in when I used to be in darkness and I'm still walking in darkness. What the Lord said through Sherry. You're focusing in on dead things. You're focusing in on things that aren't eternal. And if you are, you're, you may be, Jesus may have called you into the light, and you may be born again, but you're still stumbling around in the dark. You know, there's the old story about the drunk that lost the keys to his car. And the cop pulls up and says, sees him out here um, searching under a street light. And he said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm looking for my car keys. He said, well, did you drop them around there? He said, no, actually, last time I know I had them, I was over there on that bench. He said, well, why, why aren't you looking over there? He said, because the light's better over here. <laughs> well, he was in the light, but he was st still stumbling around in the dark. He was looking in the wrong place. That's the reason that the Bible does make a difference to us. If you are a Christian, then you have to accept this. And I, I will tell you quite, the, the, I've seen enough arguments and I've seen enough, or seen enough different preaching to know that different people will interpret passages differently. Honest people will, will disagree over what a scripture means. I don't get upset with people. But for me, I've got to get in and find out what Jesus said about me. And when I read the Word, the Word will enlighten me. Let's go on there in Ephesians. He said, I pray that the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, not, not that it's going to get enlightened, it's already enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance that's at work within you. I know that's what, not what that says, but that's what several translations give you the idea that, that the glory of His inheritance is already at work within you. It's not something that you need to work hard at doing. I can't remember the minister's name. I used to listen to him a lot in the 90s. But he had this one word. He said, you need to sing life in the key of be natural. God, Jesus said it. He said, take, if you are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. For my burden is light and my yoke is easy. 
living the Christian life, well, there are two ways to look at it. One, it's not hard, it's impossible. So you need to quit trying. But Jesus will not lay a load on you. If, you're, if you are uh, laboring under this, some heavy load to try to live the life of a Christian, you're not doing what Jesus has called you to do. Jesus hasn't called you to do something hard. Now, it may be challenging. You may look at it with your fleshly mind and fleshly eyes and say, that's impossible. Yeah. Big deal. We, are a God of, we serve a God of miracles. He's not going to ask you to do something that, is, that, that may not test your fleshly way of thinking. He's going to ask you to do things that when you started, there's no way. This can't be done. But that's like asking, that's like telling someone, um, my, my grandkids, I've got one in the, well, they're graduating now, so I've got one's going to be an eighth grader next year, one's going to be a sixth grader next year, one's going into the third grade, and one's starting kindergarten. Well, the one going into eighth grade, he's doing eighth grade level work. If I take the baby who's going to start kindergarten next year, now he's way ahead, he's already reading. So my, my great fear is he's going to be a little bored when he gets kindergarten. He's going to know most of it. But if I take him as smart as he is and as advanced as he is, and I stick him in the, the, the 13-year-old's class in the 8th grade next fall, he's going to be lost. He can't do what my oldest grandson can do. He hasn't progressed in the same way. When God calls you to do something, sometimes He'll give you a glimpse of where you're going, but He normally won't show you too far out. But He's going to far, show you far enough that you're going to think, man, that's hard to do. I don't know if I'm capable of doing it. Well, in yourself, you're probably not going to be capable of doing it. But if you will just start take a step. You will start progressing and when you get to the end of the road you will have progressed enough that you'll have the strength and the knowledge and the will and the faith to do what he's called you to do. But if you don't, just what I said earlier, if you don't look at it and say today is the day of salvation this blessing is here for me now, I've got to take a step now. I can't wait a month. If I wait a month I should be at, at step two and I still haven't take step, taken step one. I used to tell my kids when I taught, I said, you know, um, um, learning is just like, learning mentally is just like learning a physical skill. You cannot cram. If you want to learn how to shoot basketball, there's only one way to learn how to shoot basketball. Get your little honey out on the court, get a basketball and shoot. You want to throw a baseball? You got to throw a baseball. You want to throw a football? You got to throw a football. You want to kick a soccer ball, although I have no idea why you would want to you got to kick the soccer ball. It takes time to learn the skill. Living the Christian life is a skill. It's a life skill. You have to have knowledge, but then you have to put that knowledge to work. You don't just gain knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It, you, you, you gain knowledge about who Jesus is, he said right here, let's back it up, verse 17 in, in Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, in the knowledge of who Jesus is, and the knowledge of who He is inside you. But you have to take that knowledge and put it to work in your everyday life. And you're going to say what I always said, I don't know how to do that. Pray. Find something. Find anything to do. And start doing it. Find something really hard. Find somebody that you just absolutely despise. And start praying for them. That's a general command. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use you. Find somebody you don't like and you just pray all of God's blessings. I'll tell you, the first time you do it, you're going to want to throw up in your mouth. It's like, oh, I just, I don't want to do that. I just want to, con, you know, condemn them to hell. I want them to go now and I want them to stay for eternity. Your flesh may want that, but that's not what God's called us to do. 
Start with those lessons and then start walking it out towards everybody you meet. Try being patient on the freeway. Now that one will test your faith. All right, now I've quit preaching going to meddling, I know. But I'm not going to read the rest of it. When you get to verse 19 through 23, Paul goes on to explain that all of these things, it's all according to the power that God used when he raised Christ from the dead. God has put his entire, well not his entire might, because it didn't take his entire might to raise Jesus from the dead. The Old Testament says that, that God created the universe with his fingertips, with his fingers. The universe is the, is the handiwork of God's fingers. Now, I'm not a really strong man, but I'm telling you what, my fingers are not my strongest asset. But it says that to raise Jesus from dead took his strong right arm. Well, your arm's a lot stronger than your fingers, but your arm's not nearly as strong as your legs and your back. So God, it took a lot more strength to raise Christ from the dead than it did to create the universe, but it didn't even tax God to raise him from the dead. He didn't really have to pull that hard. Amen? But all of the power that he used to raise Christ from the dead, he's made it available to you so that you can ha work out that inheritance that, that he's put in you. Now, part of the problem, though, is do you really believe it? Now, I will challenge you. Don't, don't actually, this is a rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you woke up this morning and your very first thought was, wow, I'm going to go manifest some of God's glory today. I don't know about you, but I, I consider myself a fairly mature Christian and I rarely get out of bed thinking that thought. But that is exactly what God has called us to, to, to do. The problem is we get our minds off of reality. Go over to uh, Mark chapter 8. And let me st set the stage here for a minute. Jesus had just in, Mar in Mark 8, we're going to start in verse um, 14, just before this incident that we're going to read about, Jesus had fed the 5,000 with just a few little fish and a few little loaves of bread. Now, I always love it when, when I was in Sunday school, you know, you'd always have a picture on the, somewhere in the Sunday school room of the loaves and the fishes. And they always had these great, big, huge Italian loaves of bread, and they'd have like a sturgeon, 10-pound sturgeon in that basket. Keep in mind, that was a little boy's lunch. Now, I know little boys can eat, but when you pack a little boy's lunch, you don't pack five great big 10-pound fish, and you don't pack, you know, huge loaves of bread. Actually, what he had was a few little, they were like sardines, and a few little pieces of rye bread, which are like crackers. He had a few sardines and some crackers, to put it in modern, what you can visualize. And Jesus took that and fed 5,000 men that's not counting their families. And they didn't get to two and three kids and stop. When, when mom and dad brought the family, we're talking 10, 12, 14 kids. You know, they had big families. So we're talking possibly 20,000, 30,000 people were fed on a few crackers and a few sardines. Now, they got in and, and, and they, they're going across the way. The, the, the disciples are in the boat with Jesus. In verse 14 of Mark 8, it says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. So they jumped in the boat, and they just grabbed one loaf because they had a lot left over. They grabbed a loaf of bread and brought it with them. And Jesus, it says, he, he charged them. He was speaking to them and trying to impart something to them. And he, he charged them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Now, when it says that, that they, um, he said to, to beware of the leaven, leaven is a, almost universally, it's a type of sin when you see it in the Bible. So he said, we could translate that loosely, Take heed and beware of the sin of the Pharisees and the sin of heaven. Now, 
This, and that's partly, this actually does apply to what we're talking about here. The leaven of the Pharisees talks about a religious system where God is the center of it, but he is an impersonal God and he's powerless to intervene in your life. I, I listened yesterday to a, a, a minister and he ministered, he has a TV station that he, they broadcast out into um, the Middle East. And millions of Muslims are at least potentially could listen to this. And hundreds of thousands, if not millions, are getting born again through his program. And the one thing that he always ministers on, as far as the gospel, is that Jesus is a God who gets involved with your personal life. Because in Islam, Allah does not care about you as an individual. He just he does not interact in your life. So when you minister to a, a Muslim, when you say Jesus wants to be one with you, Jesus wants to bless you and do all these things for you, that's totally foreign to them. And to be honest with you, for most just secular um, atheists, whether they're an actual atheist or just a practical atheist, you know the old saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. You let enough trouble come, most people will start praying. They just don't know who to pray to. They're praying to that mystery God or to the old man upstairs. They they don't think about a personal relationship with God where He not only wants me, but He wants to bless me. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. That's the religious system that's out in the world. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, beware of this. Why would he tell his disciples to beware of this system where God is impersonal, even though your whole religion revolves around God? Because it's possible for us, even as believers, to get into that mode where we we worship God but God is some mysterious, all-powerful thing. And you don't want to get to... I, I've used the, the, the example of you know, my vision of God when I was backslid back in my 20s was the game Whack-A-Mole. The mole would poke up his head and you take a, a big mallet and you've you got to whack that mole every time he pokes his head up. And that's, the, and, and that's to be honest with you, and I'm not going to go through and tell the whole story, but most of that viewpoint in my mind came because Christians religious Christians, when, when I buried my children, they would come by and pat me on the head, hand and say, oh honey, God won't put more on you than you can handle. Or when I really got nasty and rebelled, you know, you better not be doing that, God will get you. Well, why in the world would I want to go before the throne of God and bring an appeal if He's killing my kids and He's out to get me? The problem was I was too stupid to realize if God wanted to get me, He'd get me. Where are you going to go hide? But finally, when I got back in fellowship with Him, it dawned on me one day. I read John 10.10 and I'm thinking, God didn't kill my kids, the devil did. I was blaming God for something that the devil did. Kept me out of fellowship with Him for a long time. But you can get so caught up in your religion... That God just becomes impersonal. He becomes some mean, old, heavenly creature that, you know, He's going to shoot lightning bolts. And I've said it before. If you want to worship that kind of God, go, you know, over and worship Odin. Because He's sitting up on Mount Olympus. And they will just reach down the earth and just mess with people. Just to, you know, they're like little ants. Let's just get our big, our big um, magnifying glass and shine some you know, narrow down a beam of light and see if we can burn up some people and see how they react. Watch them squirm. That really is some people's version or or vision of who God is. When in actuality, God left heaven, came and became a man. Can can you imagine? I mean, forget about going to the cross and paying the price for sin. For an eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God to limit Himself in a human body. That's a huge sacrifice right there. Let alone, at the end of it all, 
He went to the cross. He paid the price for every sin that's ever been committed by any person. And then conquered death, conquered hell, and came out and said, I've done it all. Here, you get the benefit of it. That's quite an inheritance. I mean, that's a, basically, when you want to look at it, Jesus said, everything that I have, and I am the God of the universe, everything that I have, I give to you. There is no way your mind can wrap, it around, can wrap around that. You cannot comprehend that. But you can't comprehend parts of it. But we need to be careful about this religious system that, that does worship God, but he's just way off in, in, in the nether regions, and he doesn't really want to be involved with my life. God wants to be involved in your life. And then there's the leaven of Herod, which is a political system that's totally humanistic, Everything is about man and working out to get things for man, and they don't consider God at all. And to be honest with you, without exception, that's pretty much the political system all over the planet Earth today. There are pockets where people are interested in what God is saying, and what God is doing, and I have to say it, I say it with great regret. Our country started out that way. But I think we're more secular than we are faith-filled today. And we need, it's, and don't, don't misunderstand me, we need to be involved in the political process. You need to vote. You need to support good candidates. And you're also free to express your opinion as long as you can do it in love. And that's a huge, you know, you start talk, talking politics like one church I was, I was um, involved in one time, the pastor always said when it came up to the holidays, he said, now you're going to go off and eat food with your, have family meals. He said, the main rule is no throwing peas and no throwing potatoes. Make sure if you're going to argue, you just use words and you say them in love. <laughs> well, you get to politics, you can, people can get hot real quick because they got strong opinions. And they're usually opinions like, you know, dealing with kids. Kids have, usually have very strong opinions, and most of the time they're based on total ignorance of the situation at hand. Unfortunately, a lot of us never grew out of that. But God has, has said, don't do this. Now, what was the disciples' reaction when God said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Their reaction is in verse 16. It says, and they reasoned among themselves. And their reasoning was, oh man, he's upset because we only brought one loaf of bread. He just fed 30,000 people on, you know, a couple of fish and some crackers. And they're worried, we only got one loaf of bread. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, guys, I just did this. You're missing the whole point. Well, that's what we're dealing with when we're trying to fight for our identification. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We read earlier, verse 4, where it said, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. But let's back it up into verse 3. This is Paul again, and he says in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 10, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. I'm just a man, but I'm telling you, when, when I go to war, I'm not just fighting with my earthly weapons. But right here, Paul is saying, I am just a person, not much to look at, kind of little, kind of short, not very strong. But buddy, when I go to war, I'm not using my weapons. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare. I love the fact that he said our. He didn't say the weapons of my warfare. It's the weapons of our warfare. It's a collective ownership. We have the same weapons he does. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. That's what carnal means. But they're mighty in God for the pulling down of these strongholds. What is the stronghold? Casting down arguments. Back in Mark 8, when it says the disciples reason together, it's the exact same word that is translated arguments here. In fact, in a lot of translations, it is translated reasonings. 
It can mean arguments, reasonings. It can mean um, um, inclinations or thoughts. Several translations I found also said conscience. Like your conscience. Do you realize that you can sear your conscience? You can get to where your conscience... In fact, I will, I will say this as a flat truth. Your conscience is not usually a good guide. Unless you've totally renewed your mind, your conscience will allow you to do things that or God's Word is opposed to. I've heard a lot of people trying to be humble, saying, well, you know, God just called me to be poor and sick. Their conscience says that that's okay. It's not. It's a lie. And it's not just a lie about, about them. It's a lie about who the Father is. God didn't call any of us to be poor. God didn't call any of us to be sick. Jesus became poor that we might be rich. And He became sick that we might become well. He's already paid the price for all of that. And, and when, when we think that it's okay... That's an area, most people think when you about searing the conscience, they always think about fleshly sins. Smoking, drinking, cussing, carousing. No, it's, there's a lot more to it than that. And there are a lot of things that God considers sin that we think are okay. That's why you need to let the Word judge you, not your conscience. We pull down those arguments. We pull down those thoughts. And every high thing that exalts itself, notice what it's exalting itself, against the knowledge of God. When God says it, that ends it. That's who I am and who, who He's made me to be. Don't care if I act like it. Now, if I, if I didn't act like it, I got over and acted like the devil, and then I come to myself, then I need to run to 1 John 1, 9. Remember, 1 John 1, 9 is not about getting your sins forgiven. It's about confessing your sins to, so you can get, get from a, a point of being out of fellowship with God to being back in fellowship with God so the devil can't beat that sin over your head. Because you get out and start acting like the devil, and suddenly you go to pray and the devil, he'd, be, he'd knock on that door. Uh, God's not going to hear your prayer. I saw what you did. I saw how you acted. I heard what you said to that person. I wasn't godly. Who do you think you are asking God to bless you? Going to believe God wants to heal you when you're over here acting like that. If you've gone to 1 John 1, 9, all you got to do is say, nope, sorry, that's under the blood. I've been cleansed of all that unrighteousness. I am the very righteousness of God in Christ, and I don't care how I feel. I may be guilty, to be honest with you. I've carried guilt. I'm a great one for carrying guilt for a long time for myself. You know, Larry Lee used to talk, when, if you know who Larry Lee is back in the 80s and 90s, he taught on prayer, and he said one of the problems was we would forgive people, but we never released them out of their cage. And we'd keep them caged up in our heart and we'd, we'd forgive them, but then every once in a while we'd pull that, that chest open, we'd reach into our heart and pull that cage out, pull them out of that cage, smack them around a little bit, stick them back in the cage, stick them back in the heart and say, Lord, I forgive them. That's why I said earlier, you want to try something that's kind of hard? Start praying for your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use you. Pray for those that attack you and talk bad about you. It's not easy all the time. But man, it pays dividends. It pays dividends. You know, you go out right now, it, it makes me sick. I, I've got, you know, a little bit of our savings in, in a savings account. And <laughs> I get the statement, and they only pay the interest every three months, and I swear, and I've got, I've got a, a, an emergency fund, several thousand dollars in savings, and I don't think I've ever gotten more than 10 cents in the last five, six years of interest for three months. They're paying no interest at all. The banks are just using my money and making money hand over fist, and they're not sharing any of it with me. But I can take that same money if God tells me to sow it somewhere, and He's going to give me back 30, 60, 100 fold. He pays dividends. You walk in forgiveness when somebody mistreats you and you pray for them. He pays dividends. 
One of the dividends is the next time you act like the devil towards someone, they may walk in forgiveness towards you and not hold, you, hold it against you. Amen? You might have relationships that work out better. If you fuss and fight with someone all the time, start praying for them. It's the best cure for marital uh, dis discord that I've ever seen. Pray for your wife. Pray for your husband. And I'm not talking about God get them. That's a dangerous prayer because usually when you pray that one for somebody else, God's going to get you first. I'm talking about God bless them. Bless them. I've started meddling again. Let's read verse 5 again. This warfare is casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The American Standard Version, which is probably one of the closest to the actual Greek, says it this way in verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Pretty close to what New King James says. But the modern, um, I forget, MSNT, I forgot what it stands for, says it this. We overthrow arrogant reckonings and every stronghold that towers high in defiance of the knowledge of God. And we carry off every thought as if into slavery and make it subject to Christ. We have to take every thought that you have. When you recognize this is not what God says, and it starts with the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Him. That's what Paul prayed. Once you know this is not who God thinks I am and you find yourself thinking that way, you need to tear that thing down, grab it. It's an arrogant reckoning. God says this, my thought life says this, I have to grab that and say, you arrogant dog, what do you mean thinking that way? And you take that thought and you stick it into prison. And you do not let it out. It's a life sentence, no opportunity for parole. You can't kill it. I wish we could kill thoughts. I'd have, man, I'd have hammered more than one of them if I could have just killed them. But you can't kill them. But you have to put them in prison. And, and understand, it's not going to be too long. They're going to have escaped from the prison and it's going to pop through your head again. That's why Paul said in Romans 12 that we need to renew our minds. It's a renewal process. It's a skill that you have to learn. And you're not great at it the first day that, that you do it. Now, the great news is, there are natural skills and there are spiritual skills. I used to, I tried not to laugh out loud. Sometimes it's hard. I had a, a student one time, he was a freshman, and he was maybe 5'3", and ever a bit of 90 pounds. And his goal in life, we, we set goals at the very beginning of the year, his goal in life was to be an NFL lineman. And I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. It was like, boy... That's a great goal, but you're going to have to grow because you, oh, you just don't have the physical skills. And, and, and I've had kids, because basketball's king in Indiana, I've had kids tell me, well, I'm going to be like Larry Bird. He's slow, he can't jump, and he's one of the greatest guys to ever play basketball. And I said, yes, and he's also six nine and a half. Now, you might be slow and you might not be able to jump, but if you're not six nine and a half, you don't have a shot. I don't care how hard you work. If you're 5'9 and slow and can't jump, you're never, you're probably not going to make your high school team, let alone make the NBA. Physical skills are limited on your physical abilities. If you're not fast, or you're not real coordinated, or you're not real big, you're not going to be a master and be a professional or a world class at a physical skill. But spiritual skills, we all have the potential to grow into a 6'9", and not just a 6'9 guy that can't, that's slow and can't jump. Because God will grow you big, He will grow you strong, He will grow you fast. He will add those skills if you will just start practicing them. And every time the devil says, you can't do that, you say, no, wait a minute. This scripture says exactly what, what Adam did not do, and... Jesus did do. When, when the devil came and attacked Jesus for who he was, are you the Son of God? He said, it is written. 
It is written. It is written. If the God of the universe did not attack the devil just out of his own power, but quoted the word to him, it worked for him, it will work for you. It will work for me. The problem is if you don't know the word, you got no weapons or you got no ammo in your weapons. And that brings us right back around. You have to get grounded in knowledge of the word. And all the Bible, the New Testament says that the Old Testament was all written for our examples. But let me tell you, if you don't know a lot about the word, start in Romans chapter 1 and read through the end of Jude. And stay there till you get a good identification of who you are. And then you can start branching out. If you, if you don't even know Jesus, read the Gospel of John. And that will introduce you to Jesus. But once you're a Christian, the primary place you ought to stay is between Romans 1.1 and the last verse of Jude. And I forgot how many verses Jude had. Those letters are written to you and they tell you who Jesus is in you. And once you get a good handle on that, then start, you know, you want to be a Bible scholar, start spreading out. But get those mastered first. And then once you get that identity, fight hard to keep it. If you find yourself out acting like the devil, run to 1 John 1, 9 and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. I'm back out there. I don't know who I am. My flesh got the, got the best of me. And I did it. And I'm, forgive me. And he'll look at you and say, my blood... My blood's big enough, strong enough to cleanse you of all of that. And I, son, we're in, or daughter, whatever the case may be, we're in fellowship. I'm not mad at you. Come here, give me a hug. I'll get back out there and kick the devil's butt. That's it. That's it. But you have to know who you are. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.